Amen. And thank you guys for being here. I feel like I'm in a weird spot. I got I to gotta adjust. Oh, man, it's been a, been a neat week. Um, hopefully it's been a good week for you. I feel like um, tis the season we talk about people being sick and it's come up, but I feel like most people are well now, which is good, and we'll take that. Um, so good. We're glad, glad you guys are here. A um, little bit of update on the, the office slash whatever we're going to call it space. We really don't know what it's going to be called. It's right down the street. Uh, did a lot of demo there the past couple of weeks, and now they're, they're tearing down walls and putting up lack of walls or beams and, and stuff like that. So hopefully uh, we will be able to take like occupancy of that place in the next little while. And if you haven't heard, we signed a lease on something that's going to be ours Monday through Sunday for the first time in the 13 years of our existence as a church, and it's just right down the street. Um, we have a lot of plans for the ways we're going to love our city with it and the ways we're going to love each other and things that we get to do, so we're super excited to have that. And so um, be on the lookout. There'll be some painting and some spackling and some drywalling and flooring parties coming up in the future. So if you love that stuff, or even if you hate it, we don't care. You can come and do it anyway. None of, nobody really likes drywall, um, even the people that get paid to do it. So um, otherwise, just, just stay tuned, and we'll do that. Um, man, today we're back in the book of Mark. It's, it's, been, it's been a long journey, but I think it's been fun. At least it's been fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you. Uh, it's the longest we've spent in a book. We're exegetical by nature as a church, which means that we take Scripture and we just, man, we read it kind of line by line, verse by verse, and we see what it says. And uh, we, we don't want to um, under-contextualize. We want to look at what's going on in the passage to teach us the truth about Scripture and what it says. Um, but the past few weeks, we've been in this place, which is kind of the Passion Week, in which, you know, historically, that means this is when Jesus is walking to the cross. Uh, the passage we're going to look at today in specific is going to be, it would be like Friday morning, you know, in, the, in the, the crucifixion timeline, which if we think about it well, what would happen on that day was a lot. And one of the things that we said is from starting about four weeks ago, things move very quickly. You know, if we read it, it seems like this could take place over a week or a month, but in reality, it was like 48 hours. Today, we find ourselves on Friday morning, and, and Friday morning of what we call Good Friday, which we'll have in about a month and a half, and uh, we'll get to celebrate again. But, but on that day, like we said, a lot of moving pieces. And, and kind of what we said last week was these passages are, they're very applicable, applicable like hands-on, what do we do? But probably more importantly, they affect how we think about Jesus, what we think about Jesus, what we think about these days and what took place. And they're, they're informative, but that information affects every part of us. And we started by talking about, you know, these things, when we look at this and we think about the price that Jesus paid, like there should be this gratitude that comes out of me, you know, in the form of the way that I live my life, the very things that I say to God, the way that I think about God, the way that I love others. There should be this overflowing of gratitude because what Jesus did was unbelievable, like in all reasonable terms, like I'm not making that word up. It was unbelievable. It's, it's crazy what he did on behalf of being obedient to the Father and then loving us as his sheep. And so we want to look at it well. We want to think about it well. Uh, today is one of those passages in which it's just we need to know this and be aware of it. And there will be some kind of hands-on application, but most important, like this is us as followers of Jesus. We need to know what Jesus did and what happened. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 15. And we do have just like three weeks left in the book of Mark. Um, and so uh, things are moving rapidly. And if you're familiar with, with the crucifixion and the resurrection, then you know a bit of what we're talking about. If you're not, man, I'm super glad you're here. Like if you're somebody, to be honest, like if this is a story that you've never heard or you've never spent time in, I am like, 
I am pumped beyond any PSI that you can imagine that you're here. Um, I, don't, I don't even know what kind of metaphor to make with that, but I'm, I'm just really excited that you're here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read through 15 verses 1 through 15 and talk about a little bit about what's going on. God, we love you. Uh, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the love that was on display in the life, the death, the work, and the person of Jesus Christ. Um, that when we looked at him, we saw you. And we know that because he said so. We know that because he loved so. We know that because he did so. And we just know that when we look at him, that no man in and of himself could do that. He had to be God himself with skin on. God, as we look at these, these last few tragic hours uh, of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, Father, I pray that we would look at it well. I pray that Holy Spirit would speak to us well, uh, direct us to the things we need to know and understand. Um, I pray that we would not add to or take away anything from your word um, and that it would be uh, spoken clearly and directly to us. And, and God, I do pray that the way it affects us would be, um, would be weighty uh, because these, uh, in kind of in our community group, we talked about God this week, that it was just these are thick, thick texts, and they're heavy. And so, Father, even though they are, I pray that we look at them clearly, uh, but I pray that we, we treat them the way they deserve to be treated. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Last week, we saw the arrest and kind of the beginnings of the trial of Jesus, uh, the trial on the part of the Jewish people, um, because what we talked about is the Jewish people were under Roman occupation at this time. Uh, the life of the Jews has been marked by the people that ruled over them for the most part of their existence. Um, from just from here, pretty in the scripture until about you know the mid 20th century, the mid to late 20th century, they were under occupation from someone else, and and even like 70 years before this text, they were under occupation by someone else. That's kind of the life of the, their story of their life, and a lot of it was due, in fact, to disobedience and God shaping them and molding them, but still using them in the midst of occupation. I think it's very applicable for us to think about that, because to be honest, we're strangers and aliens where we live in reference to the kingdom, and so they lived it. We can too, but either way, that's a, that's a whole other series. Um, and so last week we saw that he was arrested, he was betrayed by one of his own, Judas, in a very personal manner, um, and we saw the chaos that began to ensue. You know, from the, the emotional part of the disciples watching this rabbi or rab, rabbi that they had been following, loving, hanging on every word to see him taken away. And for them to probably think, my life is just falling apart. Everything I thought I knew, maybe it wasn't true. Everything that, that I thought was right is coming undone. Uh, the robe is unraveling, so to speak. But yet we see that Jesus, in the midst of this chaos, even chaos kind of demonstrated by those two odd verses in the middle about that guy who was following them at a distance, just wearing a sheet, he ran off in such haste that he left the sheet and he ran away naked. You know, just the chaos that was there was real, but from the very beginning of it, we see that even in the midst of that chaos, Jesus was entirely in control. He was directing every single bit. He was living in the midst, and he was doing exactly what needed to happen in order for him to land on the tragedy of the cross. And so crazy, but Jesus in the chaos, um, he was still in control. And so we want to take that a little bit further and think along those lines today and understand that he was still in control in the chaos. The Jews, the people of Israel, they had their trial for him, but because they were under Roman occupation, they were limited as to what they could do. Um, one of the limitations is they could not exercise capital punishment on anyone, even if they wanted to. Now, later in the book of Acts, we see them at their wit's end with a guy named Stephen and this guy named Saul. He goes ahead and takes it upon himself to kill someone 
publicly and tragically in the form of capital punishment, but that was kind of a rush to judgment. They wanted to do it right here, you know, so to speak. Like they wanted to make sure that Jesus was truly dead, like dead dead, not just a little dead, not a degree of dead, but totally dead. So they wanted to do it by the letter of Roman law. And so what we found last week is they couldn't actually sentence him to death. So what they needed to do is appeal to the higher authority, their governing authority, which was Rome. And so that's where we find them today. Uh, we did, we're not skipping a large chunk of scripture, but last week we wrapped up with 1465, and there is a passage in between there and here. We covered that three weeks ago when we were looking at Peter, uh, when he said, I will not deny you, even if I have to die with you. We, we read that. If you missed that, uh, go back and listen three weeks ago. It's online. It's on all those places that podcasts can be found, um, and that'll let you know what happened there. But we're starting in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, and uh, we'll go through verse 15. And it says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas or Bar Abbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me, uh, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and, uh, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And so now the Jews had taken it as far as they could take it with their council, the Sanhedrin, which was the collection of the religious leaders of their time. It was made up of several different groups, some things they agreed on, some things they didn't agree on. But in this case, the one thing that they agreed on the most is this Jesus, he needs to die. That was the unifying factor for them. It's one of the few times in the course of history. Now, their history would end in about 30, 40 years. But up until this time, it's one of the few times that we see them agree. They were always stratified and divided, but in this place they were in complete unity and said, this Jesus, he threatens everything we've accumulated for ourselves, our wealth, our power, our authority, our position, our robes, our phylacteries, all those things that they loved so dearly, they said he's a threat and he needs to die. And so at the, at the end of the passage that we looked at last week, they had, uh, they had already beaten him. They had already sentenced them from their heart, and they had decided that they wanted him dead. But then they, they collected again, kind of in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness with everyone, and they just decided, they just kind of did a straw poll amongst all the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all of the Sanhedrin. They were like, hey, with a show of hands, they, didn't, they probably didn't do this, but for us, this is how we vote. With a show of hands, who wants Jesus to die? And everybody's like, I, me, kill him. They wanted to make sure they were unified, and they were. It still blows my mind. One thing we talked about in our group this week is like the level of hate on display 
in this passage. Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever felt that level of hate towards anyone or anything, maybe to a door jam when I stomp my toe, but that's inanimate. And, and I know the door jam didn't do it. I'm just mad because I'm clumsy. But like the level of hate that they displayed to in unison and with thought and with uh, conversation to say, we want him to die is, is overwhelming. And in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And soon as it was morning, the chief priests held the consultation with the elders, the scribes, the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate would have been the prefect or the governor of this region of Judea. And so they would have called him governor, but from Roman rule, they would have been called a prefect. So he wasn't Jewish. He was Roman. He was placed there by Caesar to rule over this group of people in this time. He did it for about 10 years, starting in around uh, 26 AD to about 36 AD. So about two to four years from now, his reign was over. But he was kind of like a governor. He was the guy on behalf of Rome to, to make sure these people stayed in line, to make sure that they were... Yes, they were, they were Jewish, and they could still be Jewish and have all of their Jewish stuff, but to make sure their Jewish stuff didn't interfere with all the Roman stuff, they would put these prefects in place, this, this guy named Pontius Pilate. And so the Jews knew that if they wanted Jesus to be crucified or killed, maybe they didn't even have crucifixion in mind, even though Scripture did, believe it or not. Um, they just knew they wanted him killed, and they knew for that to happen, they had to appeal to Rome. And they couldn't go to Caesar, so they went to their prefect, Pilate. And so they go to Pilate and says, Pilate asked him, based upon their telling, he said something odd. Now granted, we hear this and we're like, yeah, 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 that's, that's one of Jesus' titles. Was not one of Jesus' titles up until kind of now. He said, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. You've said so. Very much like the trial, because this one does. It mimics and it shadows and it kind of parallels the trial that he just had with the Jewish people, like we talked about a minute ago. Like they threw a bunch of accusations at him. They threw a bunch of charges at him. They talked about the temple. They, they kind of twisted his words about the temple, even though what they said was entirely true. They thought they were making it up, and it was something disastrous that they were saying. Uh, but they threw a bunch of charges, and in that time, Jesus said nothing. He didn't say a word. And we reference back to the Isaiah prophecy of the sheep would be led to slaughter, and he would not open his mouth. Or open mouth is not, if we were looking at Hebrew word order, which that doesn't always work with English. But either way, uh, we looked at that. But then they asked, they kind of asked, are, are you the son of God? Now, he didn't answer the charges, but he did answer about his identity. And, and we talked about that in our group, too. Why answer that question, not the others? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and in that case, he, he said, I am, I am, I'm him. And you're going to see me coming back. You're going to see me coming back in dramatic fashion. And that was the thing they needed to hear. That was all they needed to hear. As a matter of fact, at that moment, uh, the, the leader of that group, he said, what else do we need? We've heard him just make himself equal with God, actually call himself God, and say that he's going to be sitting at the right hand of God, which puts him on equal footing. That's blasphemy. It's time for him to die. And in this place, the very first question that we see Pilate ask him, he said, are you the son, I mean, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, his answer was a, a bit more coy, but it was confirmation. He was like, you say that I am. It was almost like agreeance, but it was almost just like, that's, that's what you say. But this was never a title that Jesus had given himself. It, was never, it wasn't even a messianic title from the Old Testament, but it was what the chief priest knew they needed to say to Pilate in order to convince him to kill Jesus. Because you got to understand what Pilate's job was. Pilate's job was to keep the people in line and to make sure they understood they were ruled by Caesar, right? 
that they had no other kings, they had no other Caesars, they had no other authorities. Yeah, you can be Jewish as long as you want unless it begins to interfere with your Roman citizenship, which you're not even really Roman citizens, but you are under occupation, so you can't possibly claim a single other authority that we can see that we can touch. So when the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes said, we're going to send him to Pilate to make sure that he gets killed, we need to call him something that's going to ruffle his feathers just enough to make sure that he's like, yeah, 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 he needs to die. We agree. And what it was is they said, look, he, he claims to be the king, the king of the Jews. Now, granted, just like the temple accusations that they made, which were not the words that he said, but they were entirely true, same thing here. Like they thought they could make something up, create just enough of a fabrication, just to tick Pilate off, just enough to have him crucify or kill Jesus. Uh, What they said in their lying and in their fabrication was entirely true. He was the king of the Jews. And as a matter of fact, he was the king of all creation, (laughs) But they knew if we just call him king of the Jews and we say that he said that and that he claimed it, ooh, Pilate's going to be upset because you can't have another Caesar, can't have another king, can't have another person that you serve other than Caesar. So they said, he says, he's the king of the Jews. And so Pilate, he asked him, they say, or you say, or I hear, you're the king of the Jews. Is that you? And Jesus' answer was like, hmm. That's what you say. It was agreeance, but it was also just kind of like, yeah, no, yes, mm -hmm, kind of. But hey, if if that's what you need. Now, granted, Jesus' attitude and my attitude are very, very different. I'm probably a little cheeky. Jesus was not. He was completely meek. He was under control in the chaos. I would probably, you know, get some head movement, which I don't have a whole lot. My cervical spine doesn't work like that. But, um, But Jesus, on the other hand, he was calm. He was in control. He was just like, as you say it is, okay, kind of a thing. So they continue. So he answered him, you have said so. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things. They started leveling all these charges again. They apparently looking at the other gospels, because this is one of those cases in which we find this account in all four gospels, the synoptics and John. Now each add uh, different details, not conflicting details, but they grow a big, beautiful story. We talked about different seats in the same room, all with different angles of view. Each gospel writer is going to include different uh, details and from different points of view, and so they do. And in one case, it talks about they started bringing up the temple again. They were like, he said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it again. Kill him! You know, they just start throwing out these familiar things. That they actually have fabricated his lies, but in reality, they're completely true. I love the irony of that. We want to lie and make it sound so bad, but in reality, they make it sound so good. But it's exactly what was necessary for him to be crucified. And so after all of these things, in verse 4, we see Pilate again ask him, have you no answer to make? Like you hear all of these charges, you hear all of these things, But in that case, Jesus was the silent sheep being led to slaughter. He didn't say a word. He didn't refute any of those charges. We've already seen going back several weeks that at one point, you know, he told those who were going to arrest him, he's like, look, you got to understand, don't cut the man's ear off. Don't start a war. If I wanted all this to be over, it could be over right now. Like a whole legion of, man, angelic warriors could come down right now. Be done. We could walk this away. But again, Jesus was completely in control. He wasn't just complicit. He was obedient. He was a willing Savior, a choosing Savior, a Savior that was choosing to go and die for us. It wasn't under reluctance, even though there was that not my will but your will be done. He saw the pain. He saw the strife. He saw the agony that was coming, but he still said, God, what you want, God the Father, that's what I'll do, even if it hurts. I could have stopped this at any time, but he didn't. And in this case, he didn't answer the charges either because what good would it have done? 
740, 760 years ago, Isaiah had said the sheep will be led to slaughter. He will not say a word. He will not deny the charges. Same thing with the Jewish trial that was issued just a little while ago, even though they were lies, but they were actually true. He didn't say a word, but he did respond to who he was. And that question, again, that one came up in our group this week too. Like, why, why would he answer about his identity, but not about the charges? And I think we, we kind of thought about it a little bit, and we talked, and kind of what we came up with is him answering his charges would have done no good. He could have denied all of those, and the trial could have, in effect, actually been over. Like, you guys have lied. Here's the truth. You need two witnesses to agree on the same lie, and they couldn't even find that. Now, under Roman jurisdiction, it might have been a little bit different, but either way, him answering the charges about what he did, it wouldn't do any good. So he remained silent. But about his identity, about his identity, on the other hand, everything hinged on his identity. Hear me. Feel me. Everything hinged on his identity. Everything. Completely for the trial, completely for the crucifixion, completely for the resurrection, and completely for my salvation. Everything hinges on his identity. Everything. Who we say God is, who we know him to be, is primary and utmost of our pursuits. Everything. A little book that I recommend to people, uh, A.W. Tozer, like 60 pages, but reads about like 600, The Knowledge of the Holy. In the very first chapter of that book, it's one that I reread and revisit uh, frequently, and it talks about what we believe about God is everything. Everything. Because we, as people, we create this idol of who we think God is very frequently because we want God to obey these certain standards or be this type of loving or be this or that. And very often what we do is we apply our humanistic belief about what a good father should be instead of looking to Scripture to see what a good father should look like. The same applies to Jesus. Like if we want Jesus to be anything other than what he is in Scripture, and that's the Jesus that we followed, what we've done is we've created a false Jesus, a fake Jesus. We've made him what we worship, but it's not the Jesus of Scripture. It's not the Jesus of reality. And that Jesus that I've created is no good for my salvation because he's not the true authentic Jesus. He's not the true son of God, God with skin on, who came and lived a perfect life. And by perfect, I don't mean good. I don't mean okay. I mean like perfect. Sin did not enter his being. The only sin that he ever saw was mine. And for this trial to move forward, for the crucifixion to move forward, for my salvation to move forward, to be realized, for me to have a chance of hope, his identity is everything. So he answered those questions. Are you the son of the blessed? I am, and you're going to see me come back. Just hold on to your robe. Woo! It's going to be something. Are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, I'm that too. His identity was everything. So he answered that. And so again, Pilate, he's, I just want to reiterate, he's like, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Verse 5 Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, one thing, when I began to read these accounts, and, and I've, been, I've been poring over them for a while, like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like I know that historically we read about Pilate, and granted, we're like, he is the baddest of the bad guys. I'm not going to say he wasn't a bad guy. He played a part in all of this. But at the same time, I look at Pilate, and I feel like that he was, he was a bit reluctant to do what was about to happen. I'm not saying that he was holy. I'm not saying that at all because we know that Pilate, Pilate was not. He was a pagan. He did not worship the one true God. He worshiped Caesar above all things. But at the same time, Pilate's just looking at Jesus and he's like, what is going on? He's not the one screaming, crucify him. He's not the one saying, Larry, you just said that you were the king of the Jews, but I don't want to do what I think I'm going to have to do. You're, 
you're blowing my mind right here. How can you be so calm? How can you be so in control? How, there's, your world's falling apart. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, what are, you, what are you doing? That was Pilate. Again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to make Pilate t-shirts or anything. That's, that's different. But anyway, verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison and, and who had committed murder and the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas, or Bar-Abbas. I say Bar-Abbas because Bar is meaning son of, Bar-Abbas, son of. It's like Simon Bar-Jonah, Peter. But anyway, sorry. Words kind of get translated funny sometimes, especially names. And so what he had as the, the prefect of, of Rome for these people, every year around this Passover time, what he would do to try to gain favor and just kind of, you know, satiate the people's desire for some type of control is he'd say, hey, you got a prisoner you like? You got trading cards for him? Let's, let's release him. I don't know if they had prisoner trading cards. That'd be funny. My son went through the Pokemon phase, and I'm glad he's out of it. Woo. But anyway, um, you got your favorite prisoner? Hey, let's release him. Yeah, because I'm a good governor. I'm good governor. I'm good. I'm nice. I'm kind. I like you. Actually, I don't, but I'm going to act like I do. And so what he would do every year at the Passover, which was kind of the culmination of all their religious festivals and feasts, for us, very similar to probably how we treat Christmas or Easter, um, for them, it was a big deal. And he's like, every year, every year, I'm going to release a prisoner because I'm so kind, so good. Now, a lot of uh, scholars will look at this and they'll say, we don't believe this happened because Rome, Rome didn't do this. No, Rome didn't do this. Pilate did this. Pilate was a unique governor over a unique people in a unique place and time. And yeah, Rome didn't have a standard to do this, but Pilate was ruling over people who were dominated by their religious thought and their religious ideas. And he, on the other hand, was dominated by hell to Caesar. And so he wanted to have some common ground, some way to bridge the gap and to actually have obedience and subservience from their people. So what he would do is appease them with a prisoner release. And so this particular year was no different. The people were expecting it. They had seen him do it before. And they're like, hey, what about that prisoner? Can we have that prisoner, please? And so as was his custom, there was this man, Barabbas, Bar-Abbas. He was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He was possibly a murderer or, murderer or someone who had uh, been party to murder. Either way, not a good guy. Not the guy you take home to meet mom if you're a young lady. You know, hey, would you like to meet my new, uh, my new man? Bar Abbas. He's a rebel. Not the good kind either. The kind that kills people. Great beard. Really good beard on that guy. Needs a little bath. Um, not that guy. He's not the guy you took home. Not the best. Especially in comparison to like Jesus. Like Pilate, no, sorry, I'm not going to give it away. Let's keep going. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, verse 8, verse 9. And he answered them saying, do you want for me to release for you the, the king of the Jews, this Jesus? He's infatuated a little bit right now. He's a little bit perplexed. He's a little bit amazed. I mean, Scripture even says so, that he was amazed by the fact that he didn't answer the charges. He's called the king of the Jews. He's been beaten. He's already bruised. He's already bleeding. He's already all of those things, and he's just kind of amazed by him. He's like, you want me to release somebody? I got the perfect guy. I don't believe that he was saying this sarcastically. I really think that's probably what Pilate chose to do. Because in another place, like if you read the rest of the Gospels, like if you read Matthew and Luke and John, like Pilate, he is kind of at a loss right now what to do. At one point after all of this happens, and we already know how it happens, uh, at the end of it, he washed his hands. He's like, look, I'm washing my hands in front of you. I want you to see. I'm, I'm not responsible for this. This was not my choosing. He played a part, but still, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. But either way, he's like, not, not responsible. Cop out, maybe. Intent, it's there. But either way, he's like, I, I don't want to do what you think. 
So he's like, well, how about this king of the Jews, this Jesus, this, this Christ, this Messiah? King of the Jews was kind of a play on that too, this deliverer, this one who would save us, king of the Jews. He's like, what about him? And then verse 10, man, shows a lot of intent. For he perceived, he thought that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You don't say. Again, I've got attitude that Jesus doesn't. And I need to, some days, I don't, I don't anyway, just, yeah. They were jealous. They did not want him to have the following that he had. They wanted the following. As a matter of fact, we go back to the parable of the tenants. They got so mad in that moment when he accused them and said, look, you have squandered your responsibility. You knew everything. You were taught everything from the very beginning. You had all the tools, and you should have led the people well in holiness and in pursuit of the one true God. But because you couldn't, it's going to be taken away. They knew exactly who he was talking about. They knew that he was talking about the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all of the Sanhedrin. They couldn't believe and couldn't agree on anything except that Jesus needed to die right there. Yeah, it was out of envy. Because you know what the people did to Jesus? They loved him. Why? Because he loved them. He healed them. He taught them. He provided for them. He shepherded them. Why? Because they didn't have a shepherd. And so he did it. And that's why he came. This Jesus who they wanted to kill, people loved him. They couldn't stand for it. No one loved them. Why? Because they were jerks. You're like, well, that's really mean to say. They were. They were. They, they, they can't die of mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglected the weightier matters of the law, love, justice, mercy. You can't do those. But hey, yeah, you're going to take them from the overflow and make sure people see that you give it, but you're not going to care how people live. You're going to place on them burdens that they can't possibly live up to. Why? Because you live up to them. Well, in public you do, but behind private doors, you don't care. And you're like, that's pretty harsh for you to call them jerks. No, it's okay. I really do. I think it's okay. Maybe not all of them, but they weren't leading well. They weren't loving well. Jesus was. And they were jealous. Not just jealous, but they were envious to the point that they wanted him dead, off the map, off the board, gone. Because it was their authority. It was their rule. It was their place, not his. Little did they know. <laughs> but he perceived in himself, this pilot, that he had been delivered because they were envious and jealous. So how about I release him? What do they say? Whew. But the chief priests stirred up the, stirred up the crowd to have him release them, release for them Barabbas, Barabbas instead. So those chief priests, they were kind of meandering through that crowd, kind of in the mix. It was a mix of a bunch of different people, probably a lot of people that were just gathered to see what tragedy was going to occur because they knew that tragedy was going to occur at some point soon. Why else would they be in Pilate's backyard? And so the chief priests kind of were in the crowd and be like, no, 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 we don't want Jesus. Ask for Barabbas, creating the mob mentality. Ask for the murderer. Ask for the rebel. The rebel. Ask for the insurrectionists. We don't, we don't want Jesus, that king of the Jews. The chief priests started the crowd to have them release Barabbas and said, verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Answering the chief priests. You called him this. You're a Jew. Right? I see it. What, what, what do you want me to do with him? You want a murderer. Okay, well, what about this guy who apparently doesn't look like he's really done anything wrong. You just don't like him. What do I do? And they, 
they being collectively cried out again, crucify him. <laughs> I, mean, I just, like, to be honest, like, I, I, don't, I don't get it most days. I don't. And that's okay for me to say, but I don't get it. I don't get the level of hate that's on display here for a man who did nothing wrong. I don't get it. That the only thing he did wrong was love me, right? And love you. Believe it or not, that's what he did wrong in the view of these people. And then, then I compare this to God's righteous plan, his holy plan for redemption. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense. It blows my mind. And I was having a conversation with a much older pastor this week. And uh, just, again, kind of reiterating to him, the longer that I follow Jesus, the more crazy this sounds to me. But it makes me believe it all the more. And I'm better with it. I'm better with the mystery. I'm better with it blowing my mind. I'm better with it not making sense. Because if it made sense, it probably wouldn't be worth believing. It probably wouldn't be worth trusting. Because if it's something that I could do or that you could do, it wouldn't fix us. But it is something that God could do. So said, so what do you want me to do with this king of the Jews that you call the king of the Jews? And they collectively shouted, crucify him. Kill him, but not just kill him, kill him bad in the most painful way humanity's ever invented. Crucify him. And crucify wasn't a metaphor back then. Now we use it as a metaphor. Oh, you were crucified. No, you weren't crucified. You were embarrassed at work. Not the same thing, kids. You're not kids, but I'm sorry. I just say that. Crucify him literally meant nail him to a tree, let him hang until the fluid collects in his lungs and he can no longer breathe and he suffocates on his own bodily fluids. Tragically, horribly, painfully, that's what we want you to do to this king of the Jews. But you, in the meantime, would you give us Barabbas? Because you do it every year, and you're so great. Would you give us Barabbas? Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? (laughs) But they shouted all the more, crucify him. It was okay for Jesus not to answer, but I think they should have had to answer, but they didn't. What evil has he done? Mm, We're not going to touch that. We just want him dead. We just want him dead. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having him scourged first, which is kind of the practice, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's neat to read this in light of the the other three Gospels as well, like in John we see that there was likely an aside in between all of this, like Mark, he's going to give just the facts, ma'am, most of the time. That's the way Mark writes, right? The action stuff, the Michael Bay, I was reminded of that, Michael Bay of Gospels, this is Mark, a lot of, a lot of stuff popping off, but he would just give the facts. But apparently in between this exchange, there were a couple other things that happened. Number one, Jesus had a face-to-face with Pilate. In John, we see that. Um, and then we also see that Herod comes in the picture in the book of Luke. Like Herod, who was a ruler over the people of Israel, Apparently, he comes in, and Pilate and him became great friends over this. That's what it said. And they became great friends over Jesus' crucifixion. And we even see at one point, Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, hey, leave this man alone. Don't, yeah, don't, don't touch Jesus. I've been having agonizing dreams about him all day long. Leave him alone. Crazy stuff. We can't make it up. Can't make it up. And then at the end, Pilate just kind of, after he sends him off to have him scourged and crucified in front of the people, he kind of puts his hands in a bowl, washes them. He's just like, not on me. This is on you. 
the insanity of the gospel, man, it's thick. And it's rich. And we couldn't write it. That's not what we would come up with. Like this is, like Tolkien's good, but this is way above Tolkien, you know? C.S. Lewis, yeah, great. Still, this is out of this world. Can't make it up. And so I know your brain may not work this way. Mine does. It's so crazy that it has to be true. It's so crazy that it has to be true. A couple of things. And this is like your only hands-on handles application before we get to kind of some of the mental stuff. Beware the mob. You never can trust a mob. The mob in this moment, they didn't want to answer They didn't really want justice. They just wanted their envy satisfied. They just wanted Jesus dead. And you say, well, why do you even point that out? Because I think we live in a world full of mobs that are going to tell us what we need to believe, that are going to tell us what we don't need to believe. And instead of the mob, just trust me, just, just go to Scripture. Just Scripture. Go there. And let each other help you. Let us, let us do it together. And that's the reason, like, these discipleship groups, we're having a meeting right after worship upstairs, and if you're not in one, there's, there's still a chance to get in one. Um, and they're going to meet two to four times a month based on your schedule. You're just going to get together. You're going to read the same thing at the same time. You're going to get together. You're going to talk about it. The mob doesn't come into play here. This is Scripture. Let the Spirit of God guide you through what He's saying. Take time to do that. It's important. It's imperative. What we believe about God is everything. The way that we learn about God is not through just experience. It's not through listening to other people. No, it starts here, and it needs to continue here. It needs to live here. It needs to be here. And we have the tools. We have each other. We have the Holy Spirit that lives in us if we just believe. We have the ability to sit down, read, parse this out, figure out what it's saying to us. This is not the mob. The mob will deceive. The mob will lead to death. The mob will try to distract and mystify and do all those things to keep us away from the truth. The mob will try, ultimately, to kill Jesus any way they can. And you're like, wow, that is incredibly metaphorical, but it's entirely true. It's what the mob does. Not the mafia mob. They do other things. They're terrible. Unless you're in the mafia, then I really like you. I don't want to die. This is not the mob. But here's the thing that we do in our brain. I think we need to look well at Barabbas. We need to think about Barabbas, Barabbas. Because what we have here, and again, we can't make this stuff up. Like, we couldn't come up with this. What we see in Barabbas, whew, is about what is is what's about to happen to us and for us. Think about this for a minute. You got a guy who has broken the law of the land many different ways. He's completely guilty. Not hearsay. No, he did it. He's guilty to the point that he is held captive. Not only is he held captive, but because of his crimes and breaking the laws that he broke, he deserves one thing. He deserves to die. And on any given day, other than this particular Passover with Jesus in the same room, he would have been led to the cross and he would have been crucified until he was dead. And probably, according to the law of the land, rightfully so. Rightfully so. He deserved those things based on what he did, what he believed, and who he was. He deserved death and imprisonment. Yet, there was this blameless person amongst him. And because of that blameless person who willingly entered the room and entered the picture, that man deserving death walked free. He walked free. 
right out of prison, charges no longer held against him, and to the applause of the crowd. That's the gospel. Right there. In a thief, in a murderer, in an insurrectionist. Because I'm all those things. You're all those things. You're a thief, you're a murderer, you're an insurrectionist. Have you not been called that today? Well, now you have. You are a lawbreaker. I am a lawbreaker. According to the law of the land which God owns because he's the king of all creation, I am deserving of death. And not only just physical death, but eternal death, which is the separation between me and God. I deserve that. There is nothing on my ledger that can possibly wipe it away. There is nothing on your ledger that can possibly wipe it away. You deserve the cell. You deserve the cross. That's where you would be going. But Jesus. But Jesus. Who didn't answer charges against him, but he answered every single charge against me. Every one. And he answers them for you if you just believe. You, me, we're Barabbas. That's us. And if we just believe, we can be set free. If we just believe. We don't have to answer for everything we've done wrong. We don't have to make amends for everything we've done wrong. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to pay for it. No, Jesus said, I will do all of that. And I'll do it willingly. Not reluctantly, but volitionally. And I'll bring peace in the midst. I'll take the pain. I'll take the cross. I'll take the death. So you won't have to. We're Barabbas. And it makes no sense. (laughs) It doesn't. But Barabbas went free and we can too. Hopefully, if you're here, you already have. But maybe you haven't claimed freedom lately. And I'm not talking about name it, claim it. Maybe you haven't realized what exactly you've been set free from. Just like Barabbas, he deserved a prison. He deserved death. He deserved to be held captive. What held him, held him captive was him breaking the law, transgressing the law through his sin and his disobedience. Same thing with me. The law should hold me captive. The law, God's law. And you say, well, that's, that's not right to speak of. No, 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 that's the point of the law. The point of the law is to point me to the fact that I need grace because I can't possibly live it out. The law should very well hold me captive. All the do's and all the do nots because God is righteous and I am not. All of these things should declare that I should never be able to escape the penalty of my sin. I should never be let out of the cell. I should die there. That's the truth. But Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not just going to give you the keys. I'm going to tear off the door and I'm going to tear down the prison. I'll die for you instead. It's crazy. And it's so true. But I need to realize that what Christ did wasn't just keep me from going to hell, but he set me free from sin. Because yes, we confess Jesus as Lord, but we also confess our sin. And we say, I don't want that anymore. Does that mean that we're not going to screw up and we're going to return to it and we're going to sin again? No. But it means we have the ability not to. I sat in a coffee shop this week, and man, I wanted, I'll be honest, like this is one of those pastoral things where I'm trying to, do, do I chew on my mouth and not say a word, or do I speak up? 
but it was a group of college girls, and they were sitting in the coffee shop right beside me. And first they came in, they were talking about the Bible study they were doing and how great it was. Then they were talking about how crazy their pastor was, and then they just started to cuss up a storm loudly to the point that one of them said, we're probably going to get kicked out of here because I'm using profanity so loudly. That's what she said. And unfortunately, I'm sitting there as a male, and she's a female. And I know as a female that's probably a freshman in college, I can't talk to her. I wish I could. If that had been a couple of dudes, I would have been honest. I'd been like, hey, let's walk outside and have a conversation because you're killing me right now. But I couldn't do it to two females. But I sat there, and I just started crying with my earbuds in. I'm like, is this the version of Christianity that we bought into? Because she even said, hey, you know what? We're Christians. We're all hypocrites. That's what she said. Do you know what she was admitting in that moment? Hey, you know what? Sin's okay. No, it's not. It's not okay. It was never okay. It was so not okay that Jesus died on my behalf for even one. He said, you don't need to be ruled by this anymore. The doors don't need to hold you anymore. I want to die so that you can have freedom. I want you to experience what Barabbas experienced when he walked out and it was no longer held against him. But if we choose to say, you know what, my sin is okay, we're saying, you know what, I just want to stay in prison. I just want to live under the captivity and the bondage. And Jesus, I need you to die for me again. Romans says, no, no, no. That's not what we do. Surely that's not what we do, right? But we do. Because we tolerate sin. We're like, it's okay. Everybody's going to do it. It's not okay. It's not why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we not only are free from the penalty and the effect of sin, but we are free from the bondage of sin. And it says that we must sin. And Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. So that means if we're living in response to Christ, we're actually trying to live a life in which sin is not marking it. Sin is not marring it. Sin is not interfering with it. And that means we try to avoid it. And that means that if we find ourselves in a coffee shop and we're using words that we don't need to use, this is a very real example, if we find ourselves in a coffee shop and we're using words that we probably don't need to use, we probably need to stop using those words instead of yelling them louder and thinking we might get kicked out. That's immaturity and childishness. And their parents need to have a conversation with them. Because I couldn't in that moment. But man, I wanted to. But I'll be honest, current culture says I can't. Now, if my wife would have been there, whew, it would have been lit. Mm. Jesus said, I've set you free from the penalty of sin, but I've also set you free from the cell of sin. Get out. And you say, well, I don't really even know what sin is. One more reason. We don't listen to the mob. We listen to Scripture. Because this informs me. This directs me. This entices me, it enthralls me, it offends me. It does all those things. But not if I leave it on my bedside table and never read it. Then it collects dust for me. Not if it stays in the seat of my car and I never take it in. I actually have to read it. I have to study it. And you're like, that's your job as my pastor to teach me. Nope, it's not. I don't know who told you that, but they lied. My job is to guide us and shepherd us to make sure that we're on the same page, circling around the same gospel, worshiping the same Jesus, equipping the saints so that they can do the work of the ministers and the, uh, the caveats of Scripture. But it's not my job to spoon feed you. It's not Zach's job. It's not Neil's job. It's not Andrew's job. It's not our wives' job. It's not our, our community group leaders' jobs. We are to be grown people who can devour the word for ourselves to taste and see that he is good so that we don't listen to the mob. And so we don't return to sin and lock ourselves back in the cell that Jesus died to remove us from. See, the gospel has implications far more reaching 
than just heaven. And that's great. That's great. But that's our eternal reward, right? And that's where we will end up. New heaven, new earth. And it is. It's going to be splendid. We don't have words for it. We don't have descriptions for it. But in the meantime, here are some descriptions and some words. Holy and separate. Sanctified. Set apart. Bride of Christ. Holy because I'm holy. Those are words we have that count for the now. That mean that we live differently now as a result of what Christ has done and what he set us free from. He said, I'm setting you free. Don't go back to it. Don't be like a dog returning to his vomit. Scripture, not my words. Don't go back to that mess. If you're struggling, here's a couple answers for you. Number one, tell someone. Tell someone. Tell someone that you trust, that knows Jesus and is doing their best to follow Jesus. Say, look, I am struggling with this sin right now, whether it's the sin of doubt, whether it's the sin of, of, of me thinking that, that I can do it all on my own, whether it's the sin of things that we actually do. You're in an adulterous relationship, tell somebody. You're struggling with addiction, tell somebody. You're struggling, dudes, looking at things you shouldn't look at that are not your wife, tell somebody. Women, too, same deal, tell somebody. First thing we tell somebody, confess. Says that confession brings about healing. You know why it brings about healing? Because that person you just confessed to is going to seek God on your behalf that He does a work in you, even on the days that you don't feel like praying. Confession one to another. Tell somebody. Number two, stop listening to the mob. Go to Scripture and go there a lot. Spend great time there. Spend great effort there. Make notes about what you learn while you're there so that you can go back six months from now when you're struggling with the same thing because it's very likely. And you can remember what God told me then on February the 26th when you're struggling on April 13th. Use a little wisdom. God gave it to us for a reason. Tell somebody. Don't listen to the mob. Listen to Scripture. And then just beseech God daily. God, teach me, shape me, mold me, make me, break me. Do whatever you want with me. I'm yours. You want to name and claim something, not prosperity? Know who God's name is and claim that he owns you. Do that. Do that. I read about Barabbas, and very often I'm like, I don't get it. But gratefully, some days, like today, I do. Jesus wanted us to see that Barabbas didn't deserve what he got. Neither do we. That's why it's called grace. That's why in that grace we get to experience mercy. We'll never understand the reward unless we look at the price. We'll never understand the reward unless we look at the price. The price was a perfect Jesus. Never did anything wrong. The only sin that entered him was me and you. But he was perfect and he died anyway. And the reward, the reward is we can be free from the eternal consequence of sin, but we can be free from the immediate effects too. We have to choose to live that way. We have to endeavor to live that way. We have to fight to live that way. He gave us everything we need, but we still have to do it. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of Jesus. And God, I, I thank you for the image of Barabbas walking out, even though he deserved to die. But your son died for him, died for me, died for those sitting in the room, if we just believe.
Thank you for loving us that much. I pray we can live like we understand it. We're going to have one more song and a few announcements, but I do 